Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 31 of Yoga Land. On today's episode, my guest is Bo Forbes. Bo Forbes is just a lovely, insightful, genuine human being. She actually started her career off as a practicing psychologist and has since become a yoga teacher and has been a yoga teacher for a number of years, but she still has a keen interest in neuropsychology. So when we set up the interview, I I know that there's always so many things I want to talk about with Bo, and it's been a while since I've talked to her. So I was trying to keep the interview narrowly focused on empathy and kind of her system for um, coping with being an empath without going into empathic distress. We do get to that topic at the end of the interview, but I kind of couldn't help myself but ask her a lot of other questions, you know, about her early practice as a psychologist, how she incorporated yoga and mindfulness into her psychology practice, you know, the difference that she saw in outcomes with her patients. I also asked her about default mode, which is something I'm just learning about, which is an area of the brain that is thought to be responsible for our tendency to judge and evaluate and ruminate on the past, present, and future. And what I've heard from her before is that mindfulness practices can can help us kind of tamp down default mode and come back into direct experience mode. So we talk about that. And then, of course, we talk about empathy. And she shares some really interesting mental and physical work for how she deals with what she calls empathic distress. So that's why I'm calling this one a neuropsych extravaganza. I think she's endlessly fascinating, and I'm sure you will too. So without further ado, here's the interview with Bo. Yeah, I would love it if you could talk um, a little bit about just your background, how you were a psychologist first by training. And I'd love to know like, how and why you made the um, transition to teaching yoga. Sure. Well, I became a psychologist at the age of 25, so I was super young. And what's interesting today as I'm thinking back on this is that I had also gotten a master's along the way, but my master's was in social sciences. And I had a huge passion for the study of indigenous people uh, and particularly the rituals that were used at not just in times of transition, but also the kind of daily rituals and the rituals of really what I came to understand as contemplative practice. And I think that was born at a very young age because my parents lived on an Indian reservation. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a lesser known thing. They lived on a Seneca reservation in, in Salamanca, New York with the Seneca. And at the time, and, and this, this sort of is a full circle story that I, I think today with what is happening at Standing Rock is starting to have more significance for me. But my dad, in, at some point in the 60s, came home from a trip and there was a New Yorker on his doorstep that talked about the, the plight of the Seneca. And in the 60s, the U.S. government and the Army Corps of Engineers got really into building dams um, to, to sort of prevent the flooding of land, except that strategically, those dams were often planned in areas that would, would displace sort of large populations of our native peoples. And 
in this particular area, they were building the, the Kinsua Dam on the Allegheny River. And the Seneca were, were fighting that. And so Kennedy, um, President Kennedy had said, I will protect you and your lands. And he, he did some good things when he was um, in office and some things to forge alliances. But in this particular situation, he signed the order for the Army Corps of Engineers to begin building the dam. And he displaced 600 Seneca and they flooded and burned to the ground generational, multi-generational gardens. So that is to say they had the, the medicinal herbs that have been grown for many generations. You know, sacred burial sites were destroyed and sites that have not simply uh, the, the remains of ancestors, but the energy. So sites can have energy and not have anything else, but can be felt. Mm. And so those were destroyed. And they also, in allocating new land, they split up the tribe. So you would lose your neighbor and maybe be living next to somebody you didn't know or wasn't in the tribe. And within two years of their relocation, half the elders died. Mm. And the survivors say that that was from a broken heart. And so before I was born, my parents were living on the reservation and my dad was uh, an anthropologist at the time and a documentary filmmaker. So he was filming their story. And then my mom came back to Boston with him to, to have me. And then they right away left again to go back to the land. So my first memories were of living in this incredibly knit together, unified society with ritual sort of all around. And those are our visceral memories that are kind of mm -hmm. in my blood and in my bones. And looking back, I feel like my dad was an empath. And so he heard this story uh, that these people were in trouble and wanted to tell their story. And I don't think he or my mother planned on getting so involved at a heart level with the tribe. And they did. And, and eventually I think they came back to have more children and raise children. But so those, those early days for me, and I think for my father, really sort of instilled in me an interest in well-being, but also in this concept of interconnectedness that we are really all linked energetically, but also that our, our physical body is only part of this greater kind of ancestral body that links us. So that could be a lineage body that links us sort of through our own lineage, but it could also be this greater body, but then also this sort of body of earth on which we live. And, and so I was helping my dad with his writing in high school and college and got really into the connection between this idea of ritual and well-being. And then I did a, a master's thesis on that while I was at the University of Chicago. And then I think I made a very quick sort of shift over to, well, how can I be of service? I'm going to go into this field of clinical psychology so that I can help alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. So that was the initial intention. Mm -hmm. And then when you found yoga, did you feel like it added that piece that I'm assuming, I'm assuming a lot here, I could be wrong, but did it add that piece of the philosophy of interconnectedness that maybe isn't there in psych in clinical psych or is it there in clinical psych? Yeah. So that's a piece I, I think I hadn't really 
thought about in that same way. I think what happened is that in getting into psychology was a journey back into the head and into the mind and into sort of how does the mind work and how do we use the mind to heal the mind? Mm -hmm. And so we really studied language. We studied interpretation and it was really interesting because we also looked at how do you connect events that are happening today in someone's life to events that are happening in the past mm-hmm. so that we can use conceptual insight to help give people the skills to feel better. And then the unexpected happened, which is that I saw my first live client. <laughs> <laughs> is it like teaching your first yoga class? A little bit um, terrifying? Yes, because what I realized is none of what I learned is actually of service in figuring out how to respond to human suffering. Hmm. And I was in, a, a, in a, an inpatient psychiatric facility on the south side of Chicago. And, you know, people were hospitalized for trying to take their own life or substance abuse. They were court ordered there. And we also had the only self-injury unit, contained unit in the whole country. And a lot of those people had suffered incredible trauma. And we had an eating disorders facility, and I had specialized in that. And what I learned is that when you are sort of in a room with someone who has tried to take their own life or who is abusing substances over and over again, has been in jail, what you really need is your humanity. Mm. And it's not to say that a, a doctoral program in psychology doesn't necessarily address humanity, but on a practical level, I realized that I was in way, way over my head. Mm-hmm. So I started to get supervision. And then about five years into the work, I, I, I realized that this, the thing that really matters here is being fully human. And being with people in the struggle to be human. And I need something more because this toolkit has a few flaws in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, early on, we started to understand at the time that I was a young psychologist that the, the research was showing the key thing was in the alliance between a therapist and a client or doctor and patient. I, I always felt that it was more therapist and client but the alliance itself was healing and that you could take somebody who was very young, who was a very adept at connecting and have a better outcome than somebody who had been doing the work for 30 years and had a, a strong mastery of theory and practice and when to use what. And, and so as I started to observe that, I began to feel that the process of psychotherapy was very dependent on my presence. So it wasn't something that people could do when I was not there. And very often what would happen as well is that, you know, I would go on vacation and and yes, I could get coverage, but there would be some kind of a falling off of progress. And that also there was something missing. And I first defined that something as soul or spirit. And I think that was the beginning of what became a reintegration of this idea of of embeddedness and interconnection that I had gotten as a very young infant and and later on. But I began to sort of explore and read and study other forms of kind of 
you could call it spiritual work and people began to get better faster and also to become like independent. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that's, I know I wasn't expecting that last part that you said, which is that when you started incorporating the more spiritual work, it enabled them to become more independent. So how, what do you think the mechanism was for that? What, What do you think happened? Oh, I mean, that's such a great question. And I think part of it is that we are whole beings. So, and yoga, I think, would agree in terms of philosophy that we're not simply a a mind, a disembodied mind that happens to have this physical vehicle and kind of a spirit that maybe we want to acknowledge in, in some verbal way, but that when we treat only the mind with the mind, we sort of, I think not only are we at the level of conceptual insight alone, but we're not taking into account this sort of multi-leveled being that we all walk around in. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's like, it's like ignoring like your arm or something. It's like ignoring in, it's the central parts of yourself if you're doing them individually. At least, I don't know. That's my thought. That's totally it. Uh, And so that for me was the beginning of this terrible understanding dawning that after all these years of study. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That conceptual or mental insight doesn't always lead to change. And that sometimes it can interfere with the process of change and and kind of reinforce the very patterns that create or maintain suffering. Uh, and it's like the the story, I don't know if you've heard the story about the Buddha in the first and the second arrow. I don't think I know that one. Oh, I, I love this one. So the first arrow is the pain that we have. It's something that happens to us, a crisis. We have a loss or like an illness of some kind or our relationship ends. And there's nothing we can do about that first arrow. That's life. We, we have pain and we have loss and we have suffering. But the second arrow is the story we create around it, the way that we maintain that suffering. Um, It's the arrow that we shoot at ourselves. And the Buddha sort of talked about, well, does that first arrow hurt, that the terrible thing that happens to us? And and the student said, yes, that first arrow hurts a lot. And he said, and and does the second arrow hurt? And is the pain just as bad? And people said, yes, that pain is just as bad. So the the moral of that story is that we can't do anything about the first arrow, but the second arrow is the arrow that we shoot at ourselves. And in my studies of neuroscience and mindfulness, that second arrow actually really comes from the mind. And so these things were beginning to kind of bubble and, and percolate probably within the first five years of being a psychologist. And I began to also search and search. I mean, it was really like an unending quest for what could alleviate suffering. And then I, I took my first yoga class and the experience of well-being was so strong that I remember thinking, if I can feel this good and I don't have you know, severe anxiety and depression, what might this be able to do for people that are really suffering? And could this be like the third missing piece a sort of working on this, you know, bio, psycho, social, and, you know, physiological element of 
our being. And then what would that look like to incorporate that into therapy? So I think those two areas probably took me a good eight or nine years of practice because there was nothing in the doctoral programs at the time that prepared us. And in fact, I was viewed as an oddity because I, for practicing yoga and eating healthily and I was the butt of the time. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> there were many granola jokes and incense burning jokes at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so this brings up for me, this is not exactly the topic that we said we were going to talk about, but <laughs> so it's interesting to hear you talk about this because what it made me think of is like, we use our brain most, like when we have a problem, the first thing we go to is our brain to resolve the problem. And it seems like what you're saying is what so many of us experience in, if we've practiced yoga for a while, which is you can think your way more deeply into the problem. You can ruminate your way more deeply into the problem. And that yoga offers somatic tools to help alleviate the suffering of the problem, alleviate the suffering of the ruminating of the brain. But it's interesting to me that meditation is just as effective, right? It's like, so it's just like using your mind differently. So do you think of meditation as almost like exercise for your brain? What a great term. Yes. I mean, so, oh, this is getting into a sticky wicket. So you can always stop me. Okay. <laughs> because I, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about, I've just learned about default mode. Oh. And I'm so fascinated by this because I, I, I well anyway I'm gonna let you talk about that oh so tell me where you learned about it I can't remember I think I first heard you talking about it on another podcast and then I've it's, since then it's like it's coming up everywhere I can't remember the exact sources but I'm like just seeing it everywhere and um definitely wanting to learn more because it's it from what I understand is that default mode is kind of like your brain's just, um, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like your thoughts kind of default mode that sort of tend toward negative ruminations and meditation and training the brain in that way just naturally helps bring you out of that daily default mode. And I think we can all relate to, you know, wearing down that cow path of, negative thoughts about something, right? Like just going over it and over it and over it again. And when you do start to practice yoga, I mean, I think that's part of why we all get so into it and devoted to it and excited about it because it just changes. It just changes the way we think about things and feel about things, even if we're not conscious of it at the time. For sure. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to weave that into this conversation. And, and also it has been an extraordinary thing to learn about. And I would say just going back a few years, when I began to have this realization that this mental insight and conceptual insight wasn't really leading to change, I began to integrate yoga and basically contemplative-based yoga into psychotherapy. So I moved to Massachusetts in 1999 And I called up the local chapter of the APA, which is the Massachusetts Psychological Association. And I said to them, listen, I want to be doing this work, integrating the the meditative aspects of yoga. And at the time, I was really using restorative yoga as an embodied meditation. And I still do um, into psychotherapy. And they said, okay, we, 
we have a free service where you can talk with our lawyer and just go over any issues that you might need to know. Because really the body was forbidden territory for psychologists. You, you did not go there. There is not a lot of discussion about the body unless you were specifically trained in a couple of the offshoots of psychotherapy, like Hakomi centered psychotherapy or sensory motor integration that were around back then and a couple of others. And so I talked with this wonderful attorney and he said, this is really exciting. We don't have any other psychologists in the country that are doing this work. So I will send you a couple of release forms, touch release forms and call me in two weeks. So I was like totally ecstatic about that. And I had been taking teacher trainings in yoga and I felt like, you know, we could really definitely bring restorative yoga in without the use of a lot of touch and really see how the meditative aspects while the body was relaxed could maybe change emotional, emotional balance. And then two weeks later, he said, Oh, you know, I'm not so sure about this. We need to have you meet with a consultant. There have been some intervening variables in the field, not related to touch or yoga, but you should go meet with these people just to show that you have supervision. So I grumbled away and I went to meet with this man in this office, you know, in a little cul-de-sac in Newton, Massachusetts. And I happened to get the person he assigned me to was one of the founding members of the Institute for Meditation in Psychotherapy. And I thought, what, who are these people and what is going on with this? And so it turned out that I got to know them and it was a community of people that were beginning to bring meditation into psychotherapy and to use it themselves as a way of sort of, how would you say it, really self-care and also caring for the mental vehicle of a therapist who has to listen to stories of suffering all the time. And so that was really a life-changing, pivotal moment. And I began to use restorative yoga in sessions. And we would do talking in the beginning, and then there would be this, you know, breathing and sometimes a couple of sun salutations and then restorative and then talking at the end. And I started to notice that the part of the session in which the yoga was being done without talking, things were happening. And so even just energetically, I could feel things changing and people would start to have experiences that they had never had before of sort of a feeling of integration and unity. And they would leap up to tell me about it. And then in trying to talk about it, they would lose that thread of what was happening in their body that was so transformative. Mm. And I'm a slow learner. So after a couple of years of that, I started cutting down a little by little the part that was the verbal part. And people kept getting better and better. And they would be able to sort of, their lives were changing. And not only that, but I, I started collaborating with a few of the psychiatrists in the Boston area. And they would send people that were really suffering, some of the people they couldn't work with, and which is what happens when you're doing something new and everyone wants to test it on the hardest possible sample to test it on. And then I would start to get phone calls and emails from people saying, whatever it is you're doing with this person, this is where I've been trying for the last 15 years in therapy to help them go. And so over time, that's what 
really developed and grew the work. And then I published my first book in 2011, starting to look at this idea of the story and how the story actually reinforces what we're doing. And that, at the end of the previous year, when the book was in press, on the other side of the, the spectrum of fields, the neuroscientists in the Mind and Life Institute, which is the Dalai Lama's institute sort of set up to begin to study the effects of meditation on the brain, were beginning to study this default mode and showing some really interesting things. So that is actually, I think I was presenting on the story in Toronto. And at the end of the presentation, there was a very long line of people. And at the very end, the very last two people said, by the way, the person whose work you just presented is here, and I've been working in his lab and would be happy to connect you. And that was Norman Farb, hmm. one of the, the foremost researchers who really established this idea of the default mode versus the mode of direct experience. So that was a long way of getting around to what you're asking. Yeah, no, that's helpful. That's really helpful. Evolutionarily speaking, over the last couple of million years, our brains changed. And that really is kind of the blink of an eye in evolution. Sounds like a long time to us. But our prefrontal cortex grew sort of tremendously in uh, new parts of it. And that part is the part that's sort of responsible for planning things. So immediately we can think about the future. But it also kind of, it focuses a lot on the, the past and sort of social connectedness. So we really do need our prefrontal cortex in order to have morality and social groups and evaluation. I need a way and you need a way to be able to say, like, if we do certain things, we'll be kicked out of our social group. And mm -hmm. so it really makes sense to have this, this big cortex. But like anything that grows, there's usually a hidden cost. And so um, at the cost of this ability to plan, we can do just about anything but be in the present. And mm -hmm. um, to me, you could say that this default mode network is the hidden cost center of our ability to, to master our environment and to evolve and to grow and to have social media. And so right along the midline of this planning and efficient, so the prefrontal cortex is often referred to as the CEO of the brain. Mm -hmm. But along the midline is this default mode network. And it, this is the part of us that ruminates, you use that word and I, I love it, about the past. Always kind of like, why did I say that in that way? And if I had only said this and he or she would have said that or done that. So it constantly sort of goes over old history. It also projects into the future. And so it's almost like a virtual reality machine that kind of tries on different futures. Hmm. It looks at what do we have in the present and, and what might not be good about it. So if we're talking today, we might be focusing on how the weather could be better or the, the background noise could be. And then there's also a part that you refer to that evaluates others and the self incessantly. And it sometimes is called the negative self-referential mode. So it's the part of me that catalogs my flaws or that perceives you as cataloging my flaws. It evaluates how much you might like me. So 
it's the part that you could say is the, okay, enough about me, but what do you think of me? (laughs) (laughs) The part we're all ashamed to like admit that we have, but we have. Oh, totally. Totally. And for me, the question that I'm asking now as a yogi and talking with a lot of my colleagues about is, um, this is also the part that incessantly compares ourselves to others. Well, this person has this many followers, or that person does this really well, or this person looks better than I do, or their butt is a little, you know, perkier. So this part is actually a part. And so when we look at at responsible social media, we could begin to ask a question that we don't yet know the answer to, which is by having sort of modes of social media like Instagram or Facebook that stimulate this part of the default mode, in 10 or 15 years, will we have actually sort of jump-started this long process of evolution and reinforced sort of neural pathways in an area of this default mode that right now is relatively quiet and sort of small. Well, not, I would say (laughs) that exists, but hasn't had this constant practice. Mm. And what will that look like in us in 10 or 15 or 20 years, this little part of the default? Okay, so I promise we'll get to the to the topic at hand. <laughs> I think this is actually very helpful because to have you talking about, you know, how how you've developed your work, I think it's just is just helpful for people to know. But how do mindfulness practices change the neural patterning and have the potential to shift us out of you said default mode to direct experience mode? That's the yeah. other thing. Yeah. Yeah. So in most of us we have the capacity for present moment experience. And that isn't simply what I'm thinking in this moment, but is sensation. It's sort of pure awareness. And then we also have this many other parts where we're paying attention maybe to a task or we're ruminating about the past. And for the moment, we'll characterize the default mode as these things that I mentioned, but it also does other things like it plays a role in creativity. But the important thing to know is that in most of us, even when we're meditating, we default to this mode of thinking and processing within five to seven seconds, Mm -hmm. including experienced long-term meditators and monks. But what differentiates those experienced practitioners from people like you and I is that the ability to recognize this default mode as it's happening and pull out of it is much faster in someone with a long-term mindfulness practice. Um, And so, yes, to your point, the practice of mindfulness in many forms of mindfulness has been shown to literally rewire our brain so that every experience we have in the moment isn't immediately accompanied by some form of evaluating and judging it. Mm, Okay. That's the basis of mindfulness meditation is you just notice the judgment. You notice, you keep noticing, you keep practicing. It's just, yeah, it's the technique of noticing. That's the key. For sure. And so meditation has the capacity to literally give us continual practice at slipping into this mode, noticing it, coming back to present moment experience, slipping into it, noticing it, coming back 
over and over and over again. And to your point, we can now begin to say, when in psychotherapy is, when are we reinforcing this default mode of thought, this sort of, it's also called narrative mode, literally. And when is it helpful? And when is it simply just strengthening those evaluative pathways and taking us away from direct experience? And I think the field of mindfulness in psychotherapy and somatic meditation are having kind of a a renaissance now in beginning to look at, well, okay, we now know that mindfulness meditation can and does quiet default mode. So how do we integrate that? And, And what does that look like? And that sort of brings me to one of my pet peeves, which is that we still, I feel, have this tremendous dichotomy between physical experience and mental experience. And so, for example, in meditation, we often think of that as calming the mind or stopping thought without also involving the body. And then sometimes in yoga, I think there's a tendency to gravitate toward intense physicality without that mindful awareness of of the inner experience of the body. Mm. And you, you really insightfully pointed out, I think strong physical practice can be very, very healing and empowering just in terms of muting default mode mm. and giving us a bit of a break. But then if we're looking at a progression over time, what are the ways in which we can incorporate mindfulness directly into movement? Because I think each field has something to offer and has maybe a a bias about that offering. And to the same token, in the mindfulness world, there is a tendency to value contemplative practice that is still, and then contemplative practice in the body can sometimes be overlooked in its potential. But so because you asked about the default mode network, one of the parts that has been studied repeatedly. And, and, and so for people listening who haven't heard about it, it was discovered accidentally because the field of neuroscience was first doing brain scans. What they would do is have, have subjects perform a task in a scanner and then rest. And so they figured the rest was not really important. You're attending to a task and then you're resting before you do the next task. And over time, began to discover that this so-called resting state seemed a lot more active than they may have thought. Mm. And that led to the discovery of this area. And, and there's not 100% agreement about what parts of the brain are fully implicated and how they work together. And this default mode does have the capacity to pay attention. So it's important to know that it's not all just in the past or in the future or negatively evaluating the self. But if every time you have a physical experience, it's married with narrative or judgment, that means that two areas are are wired together and that it's hard to be in the moment without judging that moment. Mm -hmm. By the same token, if you have the capacity, or I do, or we all do, to pay attention really strongly but not to our experience in the moment, but rather to either sensations of pain or to to story, 
um, or to what's negative in an interaction, then you're getting other wiring issues. So to start to look at the idea that anxiety, depression, chronic stress, and chronic pain all seem to share anomalies in this default mode, but also difficulties in some way or another with the experience of being fully embodied, fully present with moment-to-moment sensation in the body. So just to lay that out there, you could take many, you know, chronic pain, addictions, eating disorders, and most of them share sort of anomalies in those two areas, full embodiment or present moment awareness of the body, and then something in the default mode. But in particular, one area that's been studied is this negative evaluation of the self. Hmm. And it turns out that this sort of negative self-evaluation part of the default mode is so strong that it can, for example, its wiring can actually predict relapse from depression, even when depression has gotten better. It's very, very strong in chronic pain. So every time there's a sensation of pain, it's like, oh, there's that shoulder pain again. Why is my body so damaged? Mm. So, or, mm-hmm. oh, there, I see that I, I'm not able to get into lunge. I just have a bad body or bad hips. So we've all sort of experienced these in myriad ways and wired them in throughout our lifetime. So the practices of self-compassion and compassion have been shown to really strongly shift how well wired in the default mode is. And then I know you wanted to talk about empaths. So quite often, and then you can, you can direct where we decide to go. In people that have high degrees of empathy, they, we, so I'll just out myself as a lifelong empath, tend to pick up on the emotional distress of other people and to experience those emotions as though they were happening in us in real time. But we even have the capacity to pick up on physical experiences of pain in other people and to experience them as though they were our own as well. And, and to rehearse and practice other people's default mode stories can oh stay. Oh my up. gosh, really? Oh, <laughs> wow. And our own stories about other people. So we could go in any of those directions you'd like, but the practices, uh, the practices that have grown out of mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress reduction have the capacity to help with anxiety, depression, chronic pain, but also with this vast population of people who pick up on the emotions and not just pick up on in a mental way, but the emotions of other people get in us. Yeah. Experiences get in us, their narratives get in us, and it's sometimes very hard to differentiate what's ours and what belongs to someone else. And by definition, that's an experience of disembodiment. Hmm. So, wherever you want to go from there, we could. Well, I might go to a surprising place.
I am definitely like a recovering empath. I remember as a child, if anyone in my family would have a fight, like if, you know, an argument, like let's say there was an argument and my sister started to cry, I would start to cry. Like I would, if anyone around me was in pain, like I would like mimic that pain. And I would try to like stuff it down because I knew it was, I knew it was a little odd because most other people I knew didn't do that. But I, you know, so I would like leave the room or like choke back tears or whatever it was. So I, I would love to just know, since we've been talking a lot of like, you know, high level for a while and science for a while, I'd love to know how you kind of experienced an imbalance in your own empathy and what your experience is now that you have kind of a, a working knowledge of how to work with it. Sure. Wow. So what a profound question. I don't believe that I really knew what this was until adulthood. Yeah. Until, but even beyond, so this was never talked about even in my doctoral program in psychology. It, we knew that you could get caregiver burnout or therapist burnout, but that was the closest that anyone ever came. But as a child, I really was the same way. Um, and by the way, empaths kind of viscerally recognize one another mm-hmm. uh, like very easily. So I think, you know, you and I bonded in, I think, 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you can have that. So empaths tend to have this instant bonding thing with people. Like you can go to Starbucks, meet someone in line and feel like, oh my God, that's another soulmate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, I it, really know the person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for me, I remember that my parents were going through a divorce when I was 11 or 12 and it was, I was the oldest of three. So by the way, if you're an empath and an oldest child, really tough, double whammy. And so I felt very responsible for the care of my siblings. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and their well being. And at the same time, also, I spent a lot of energy trying to sense conflict before it happened, like the early signs of conflict, and mediate that conflict. So, for example, I, I remember that visitation was an issue, and often my mother would want to decide that she wasn't going to abide by the visitation schedule that I knew my dad, I mean, the court had set. So she would make a comment like, well, your father may think he has you this weekend, but you're not going. And I would get to school and I could not rest because I would know that conflict was coming. And Mm. it's like a literal inability to be in my body. And as soon as lunch would come, I would take my lunch money and I would call my dad on the phone and I would say, mom wants to have us this weekend. Can we go with her? And he would say, yes, of course. And then- And you would head off that conflict between them. And it would feel like such a relief to not have two people who you love in conflict with each other. Yes. And in particular, I was very close to my dad, who I, you know, as I've said, I think was an empath as well. And I felt so acutely his sense of displacement and loss at, at their divorce and the sort of loneliness of being out of the house. And I felt that as though it were my own. So as a 12, 11, 12, 13-year-old adolescent, I didn't realize that I was managing a sort of nearly intolerable repository of emotion that wasn't my own experience. 
Um, and that was, I think, around that time I started having sort of learning anomalies, I would call them. And my school would refer me for testing and things like that because I couldn't string together a sentence. Aww. And, you know, as a, as a writer now, I understand that that was just carrying, carrying around too much. So I think in retrospect, the ability to sense other people's suffering before they even realize they have it or could give voice to it was like my destiny. And I didn't realize there were other people like that or that it was a, a very common anomaly. And so, of course, what profession did I choose? Like the person who witnesses and listens to and hears other people suffering all day long. Mm-hmm. And I can remember as a young psychologist, some of the stories of sexual trauma and physical trauma and abuse were so great that I would get home from work in this psychiatric hospital and I would have to take a shower. And I literally didn't understand that these things were living in my body. So I would say that it wasn't until really to be I don't think I've ever thought about this in this way, but it wasn't until I began the practice of yoga and then contemplative practice at the same time and realized what was going on that I understood it was a thing. And, and in particular, I remember beginning to do teacher training. And I would get these people that were extremely emotional and responsive to one another like popcorn and then realizing, oh my God, they all have this thing and I have this thing. Nobody realizes they have it. And I remember a couple of times in teacher training, we would talk about this being an empath and people would glom onto it. Like, what are you talking about? What is that? Why is that? And as I started looking around the yoga world, I would bet, I would say that 75 to 80% of people drawn to teach yoga are empaths. So I didn't really understand that oh and also at psychotherapists as well so if you can imagine that yoga teachers hold the suffering of others Mm -hmm. psychotherapists do as well and nobody really has this shared language for what that is or tools about how to work with it and I mean the interesting thing is like you pointed out in order to I've always wondered how therapists do it right in order to, and, and it's interesting, raising a child in this time period that we're in, I think one of the benefits is that there's a lot of discussion of social emotional skills and social emotional learning. And that makes me so happy because I think that was just not in awareness prior to now. So you hear a lot about like teaching your children empathy and teaching them to relate to others and things like this. And so obviously empathy is a wonderful, wonderful trait. But in order for you to do your job as a therapist, there has to be some tempering of perhaps, I guess, the way to refer to it is over-empathizing. Yes. You need need to find a balance. You need to somehow find a balance because it doesn't, it's not going to help you do your job to overly relate to every person suffering in the room or every client that you see. Or to carry it in their bodies. I mean, we used to do a lot of trainings in yoga therapy and in our supervision group, a yoga therapist would come in and they would start to say like, gosh, I, I, you know, since I've been practicing yoga, I haven't had any shoulder pain, but man, I've been having it in the last couple of weeks so intensely. And then they would present this case and it would be shoulder pain. And I started to realize, wow, 
you know, in yoga, I think a large percentage of yoga teachers and yoga therapists are sort of running a client's or, or student's issues right through their own body as a means of sequencing or addressing those mm-hmm. things and not realizing that it's happening. And what's interesting is that I've begun to study compassion, you know, through these contemplative practitioners and the Mind and Life Institute, and recently took a course at the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism. And it was a course on compassion. And what's interesting is that as an empath, I've always been a little bit turned off by like, oh God, more compassion. I I so don't want more of that. But in particular, Thupten Jimpa, the Dalai Lama's physician, wrote a book called Fearless Heart, which is absolutely amazing because he wrote this beautiful book, and he's part of the Stanford Center called The Fearless Heart. And I was listening to a podcast with him probably six months ago in which he talked about how many people get stuck in empathic distress. That, to me, is a definition of an empath somebody who's carrying and embodying and experiencing the anxiety and depression and chronic pain and distress of others without the ability to move through that. And that empathic distress is actually a really important stage that is the precursor for the development of compassion. And so compassion is actually a boundaried place of being able to act. And it's, it's worth the time and effort it takes to train, definitely so in empaths. Um, But the interesting thing is that the studies in compassion show that compassion practices are associated with higher heart rate variability and other indexes that are actually signs of greater resilience to stress. And so in today, you know, with the recent election and the the situation at Standing Rock, so many yogis that I know are overloaded with empathic distress. Everywhere mm-hmm. we turn, you know, people are in pain and people are suffering and we are in pain and suffering. And so a lot of the dialogue that's out there is sort of like, okay, we need to meditate on love or, okay, we need to stand up and be. And then for me, that argument that I think we're having in the yoga community is such a beautiful embodiment of the challenge and speaking to how when we are in empathic distress, we can get stuck there. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, developing the capacity for compassion and compassion training increases positive emotion and it does not decrease negative emotion, which is kind of cool. So it's not going to take away distress entirely but it enables us to act from a kind of boundary place Hmm. so that we have a model for you know how do we in this difficult time not sort of overly like how do we not be a vessel to contain all the suffering of all the groups that are you know being marginalized right now Um, the ancestral suffering of our native people at Standing Rock, the suffering of the earth on which we live, and then how, what, what do we do from there to get to what we need to do in the world? And and a lot of us are being called to some form of action. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things that you're talking about is boundaries and 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 that is something that empaths really struggle with. So how do we get to that place? Like how do we work with having better defined boundaries and identifying how to, you know, identifying those moments without turning away? I think sometimes people who get overwhelmed with their emotions and their empathic distress, when you don't know what to do, sometimes it feels like the easiest thing to do is just to turn away. Oh, for sure. I mean, and and there's actually a name for that. It's called compassion collapse or sometimes compassion fatigue. And Mm. that's really just an overwhelm. And it's not an overwhelm in an intellectual sense. It's, It's literally a visceral empathic state of constant distress and you know many people that are empaths and certainly you know after we put that article up on the website we get all the time people people's stories in the comment thread about experiencing this kind of empathic distress their whole lives and that what's happening now in this country since the election is really that people who are empaths have been sort of flooded with not just the distress of people being marginalized or the pain of groups that have been targeted their whole lives, but the anger and the rage of, of people that are, are perpetrating abuse and discrimination of all kinds and even ancestral, the ancestral genocide and abuse and marginalization of our of our native peoples. And so all of that is mixing together. So the first thing really is to understand that that is happening. Mm-hmm. So for I'll, I'll use myself as, as an example, probably two or three weeks before the election and, and then up until maybe the last few days, I was obsessively looking on Pantsuit Nation and <laughs> those stories are beautiful, but they are all stories of suffering, even though they're very heartening. And so for me to finally understand that I need practices to be able to ground in my own body and have some form of separation from my own direct experience with the experience of others so that I can move out of empathic distress in which I really wasn't functioning well, like I was staying up till all hours and practicing a little less, meditating a little less because I wasn't in myself or other, other people's experience was so in me. So, you know, your question is wonderful because it really looks at just the recognition of what's happening and that there is something called empathic distress that can be very not just challenging to experience, but can literally affect our own biology. So the first boundary is just to recognize that that's happening and to understand that we need to deal with it through our physicality, not through some kind of mental construct or, or process. Yeah. So it's kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is getting back into your body, not trying to think your way out of it, but perhaps spend more time on the mat or so yeah what 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 are some some of the things you've been doing to um to ease your empathic distress? Oh, I love that question i mean so we we have on our website, and I'm not sure if it's easily accessible elsewhere, but there is a an article in the June, July, or maybe August issue of Yoga Journal on boundaries, 
and I would say that that directly addresses empathic distress also, even though we didn't use Mm -hmm. that language and offers practices. For me, actually, one of the most helpful tools and biggest surprises is to begin the art of working with connective tissue hydration and release. Hmm. And that is on so many levels. So I came to the sort of, and I have to definitely give props to Jill Miller and Sue Hitzman, who have kind of pioneered this idea that there's not just foam rollers, but that we can work with this body of connective tissue and also Tom Myers. And for me, the surprise was discovering that not only is it a doorway into mindful awareness in the body, as opposed to just body awareness, but that mindful awareness in the body has a tremendous amount of research behind its efficacy as a healing tool. So it isn't simply rolling around on balls any more than it is just kind of going on autopilot through half an hour of sun salutations and handstands. But the awareness which, with which we move is the key element, the key, that mm. mindfulness practice. And for me, the connective tissue release work with balls is a, a way of teaching boundaries on so many levels. And so that has been a tremendous surprise to find that if you bring your focus, your your attention and awareness to the point of contact between whatever tool you're using, it could be your hand or yoga tune-up balls or something else. But between that, that tool and your body, it becomes a meditation sort of in this body of connective tissue And that's a whole other topic. We could go into the connections between that and mindfulness. But so for me, releasing in certain areas, and particularly the the bodily areas that express alarm and stress. And Mm. so I would say that we know that we are not just areas anymore, discrete areas to release, but whole sheaths of tissue. And A sheath can wrinkle, kind of like ribbon candy where it has those sort of folds. And if the wrinkles remain, those areas become dehydrated. So it's not the amount of pressure, Mm. but it's how do we unfold a whole sheath of tissue. And so for me, I have begun to, particularly over the last 10 days, use a sequence that involves releasing abdominal tissue and you get this, these two added benefits of also stimulating interoceptive awareness or mindful awareness of the body, plus stimulating vagal tone, which improves stress resilience, which is very good for us empaths. Default mode kind of begins to shut off, but also the extreme physicality of others. I can't be paying attention to that. Um, often I'll do the scalenes on, uh, just above the collarbones, which contract very strongly in alarm. And then I'll on my intercostals because those keep tightening and they also constrict when they're tight, not just the tissue and, and dehydrate it, but the breath. We can't breathe as deeply, so shallow breath. So it's sort of this process of at least once a day, always before bed, unwinding those areas over and over and over again. Wow. Yeah. 
And did you say that the sequence that you referred to, I'll get the URLs from you to, to put them on the show notes page, but are the sequences um, ball rolling sequences or, or asana sequences? You know, what, what I tend to, I, I do asana as well, super slow asana, but my, what I gravitate to the most right now in this time of like extraordinary distress and transition in our, not just our culture in the U.S., but, but world culture, you know, with Brexit and international conflicts, is I do, in addition to my moving practice, I will do connective tissue work with blocks and balls. And, you know, maybe I can come up with a sequence and a couple of photographs, if, you, if you'd like, just... Oh, just that would be so amazing, Bo. That's <laughs> such a generous offer. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I think... That- incredible, um, incredibly helpful for people. And, you know, I, I have heard so much about Jill Miller and I've never um, experienced her work. So you totally turned me onto that now and I will, I will check it out. She is amazing. And I, I feel that there's sort of a sisterhood of connective tissue people, Jill and Sue Hitzman, who does the melt method. And I utilize it in a deeply emotional way. So I think perhaps um, we have subtle differences between us, but we all uh-huh. talk and collaborate and love one another's work. And Jill does also a lot, they both do, of what they call nervous system down regulation, mm. which is sort of calming the autonomic nervous system. My focus is on nervous system resilience. So my model is, is that some of us, I mean, w- calming is great but we want an elastic nervous system. And boy, if there's a time that sort of illustrates that better, I don't know what that would be than now, but we want a nervous system that can respond and become very activated when appropriate, but then sort of return to a point of balance or equanimity. So I love to use the resilience model of of creating elastic nervous systems particularly in the time to come. Yeah. You know, through this marriage of movement-based practices where we have mindfulness right in in the movement and then contemplative practice that involves the body, not just Mm -hmm. the mind. Yeah, that's great. This is such a great conversation. I, I feel like you've offered a lot of helpful tools and perspectives. And like I said, I will put links to other articles you've written about this because um, there are a few places that I've seen your writing appear about these topics. And then if you wanted to contribute a sequence, that would be amazing. Sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, it would be nice to be able to offer a lot of this work to people outside formal conference settings and things like that because yeah. We, Need, we need it more than ever. And if we're going to be able to literally carry ourselves into this world that we are, are living in at this time in history and to be effective and to work together, then caring for ourselves in this time of either empathic distress or compassion fatigue or withdrawal becomes so, so important. Yeah, it's essential in order to, in order to do the work. It's, it's essential. You and I were talking earlier about, um, I can't remember the specific instance, but we were talking about 
you know, the other thing that can happen if you, if you are, you know, have that sort of an excess amount of empathy is the inability, well, for me, in my personal experience, like the inability to be direct with people and to communicate directly. And because, you know, you might be so afraid of hurting their feelings or, you know, creating distress in them that it can be hard for you to find your own voice. And like the most, the classic sort of really extreme example of that, that I thought of before we started talking was, you know, where you, you don't want to break up with someone. So, so you wait for them to break up with you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and I, I don't mean to say, just end it on a silly note, but it's like, it's, it's similar to, you know, I mean, I think it relates to what you're saying, which is like, if we want to, if we want to do work in the world right now, you know, we have to be able to feel like we can stand our ground and, you know, use our voice and feel clear and feel resilient, like you said. So, so those practices of self-care are, are key. Oh, that's such a good point. I mean, I, there are so many beautiful points embedded in, in what you just said. So I'll try to tease out a couple of things, but I, I so agree 100%. And often what I have experienced in myself during times of empathic distress, particularly in the aftermath of the the recent election, and then, of course, having lived on a Seneca reservation and, and having so much of my work be about not just embodiment, but embeddedness of our embodiment in community and for social change, that I can get to the point, and it, it feels as though this is true of many empaths, where we lose touch completely with who we are. So mm. there's a delayed reaction even in understanding that we want to set a limit on somebody or even what we want for dinner because when we're flooded, not just with emotions of others, but we literally, I feel like uh, when I imagine my energy body as an empath and the, body, the energy bodies of, of other empaths, they're huge. Like they just, they are thousands of pounds heavy and miles wide because so many experiences get sort of poured into us as though we are a vessel. And in my most difficult moments, I sometimes don't recognize that that's happening in time. There's a very delayed reaction. I can't really articulate where Bo with a capital B is in there mm. and which feelings are mine and which belong to someone else and yeah. what action is mindful action and what is more reactive. I can't feel the truth of my own body and my own being until I spend time, you know, in both you know, meditative or still practices, but also for me that the tissue work is almost like a release valve and it gets the crap from other people and the news stories and the things that are happening. It sort of pulls it out of my body enough, yeah. enough for me to feel that I'm there and that I have a desire that might be different. Hmm. So whether it's to break up or to end a business relationship or something that is no longer serving my work in the world, I have to first, it's sort of, I have to pull all the threads out that don't belong to me anymore so that I can even feel where I am and, and then do it over and over and over again. So for empaths, 
it's like a daily practice. And during times like this, for me, it's been twice a day or three times a day, or I can completely lose touch with what day it is and what my other responsibilities are, or the fact that I haven't eaten sort of a real solid meal, but I've been snacking on So I have been amazed and surprised, even knowing what I know, with how out of touch with my self, the, my body, my own direct experience, I can be during times of crisis like this. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's happening to others as well. And so I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, you see, yeah, I don't know. You hear and see about it a lot right now. Yeah. And I think that's why we're, we also in the yoga community where we're doing some proselytizing and some sort of, there's been a little trolling about whose response is too passive and doesn't emphasize action enough or who's focusing on the wrong thing or, you know, what we're really saying to ourselves, I feel is something very important, which is we're all on overload. And so the process of finding our embodiment and our that natural connection with others to move from empathic distress to sort of the clearing out that needs to happen before compassionate action can even be taken maybe even in writing that is the practice and then you you also spoke so eloquently about there is also the very it might seem mundane in light of what we're contending with on a on a global scale today I mean, if we had talked when we were planning to talk maybe a month ago, it would be a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But I, the very act of deciding what is okay and what's not okay for ourselves and what we actually want, that's not so easy for people that are highly empathic. And so for me, I have a really strong sense that my work is shifting and changing and becoming something different. But as an empath, I get stuck in responding to the requests and the distress of others and the world. And so it's become clear over the last nine days that, and, and I even think I wrote to you sort of like, I have lost my, the meanness that enables me to take compassionate action. So the work has been sort of piecing together my tendons and, and ligaments and blood and bone and breath over and over again, and then beginning to decide how do I structure absorbing other people's distress or, or um, how do I learn what's going on in the world without watching it three or four hours a day? And for me, community action in the yoga world or, or even something like Pantsu Nation, there's an opportunity to be extraordinarily effective if we understand how empathic distress can happen and how it can limit our social activism and how if we're taking action as individuals, that can be helpful. But if we were actually to combine resources in recognizing empathic distress, working through it, and then I I was fantasizing the other day about how amazing it would be if a group like Pantsuit Nation or, or Yoga Nation were to have an app or a, an organized way of viewing news and important things that we need to know of offering practices that help us sift through 
our response and also the distress that we carry of others in our bodies. And then understanding what we're each called to do so that we are proactively moving in action through the world as opposed to reacting to what's put in front of us. Yeah, and that may mean also the idea of what do we say no to, which is what you're getting at, and how do we, you know, I had to say no to doing a story for someone the other day in order to to be here with you. And they kept saying, well, but we could do this with you Sunday evening instead of Sunday morning if you're meeting with the amazing Andrea and Yoga Land. And for me, it has to be, well, I need to risk upsetting this other organization by saying, I can't also do that. And that's not easy. Like we, the idea that we're not super people. Yeah, it's no, it's true. It's true. It's, it's funny when you, when you take a step back from it and think like, well, of course you can just say you're a professional and you're and they will understand, but, but the feeling of it in your body is, is completely otherwise. Completely. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so articulate. And so, I think you've just helped me understand why the conversation around feeling guilty when you say no, it feels like just the outer layer. And that part of it is even understanding how to listen to the message of no in our own physicality. Like where, where are we and what do we want? And 50% of the time when I don't say no, it's because I haven't been re-inhabiting my own being even to hear where no is. Give me the guilt any day. But just <laughs> what I really crave is the capacity to continue to listen to the messages that my body sends me and to provide the care and enough release and enough practice so that I know and feel and hear what my body is asking for from me and where the no's need to come. Because that often, I think for empaths, it's not just that we're overwhelmed and overloaded and carrying around other people's stuff. It's that in the midst of that, the no, it's like a voice uttered, like a whisper from the sort of vast tundra of our connective tissue. And we can't hear it amid all the other things Mm -hmm. clamoring for attention. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a really, that describes how I feel, I think, in those kind of situations. It's a good description. A lot of good stuff here. Thank you so much, Bo. I'm, I'm excited to share this with everybody. Well, thank you for having me. I, I just, um, I love what you're doing. And, and there is something so community focused about it, actually. And one of the issues of the traveling yoga teacher is that we can't we're not as exposed as I would like to be to the work of one another, which is one of the reasons I, I do go to Estes Park, even though it's a long trip and physically intense, is because... It is a hard trip, yeah. It's a hard trip. But that shared experience of, of hearing about other people's work and other people's struggles is something that we can't get on social media or just simply by following someone, but Thank you for being a hub for this kind of conversation. It's, it's so such a beautiful thing to be doing and a service. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're in this time where there are so many teachers and it can feel, I think, 
you know, it can feel competitive from time to time at every, at every level. And, you know, I see so much more of the connections. So I'm, I'm just, I'm really happy to, to be here playing this role. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's helpful. It's amazing. And it feels to me like other things will grow from that. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 31. And I will put links there to Bo's website to her article about empaths. And in her article, she goes through all of the steps um, for coping with being in empathic distress. We didn't go through all of them on the podcast. And I'll also link to a few of her uh, ball rolling sequences that can release tension. And if you are interested in another neuropsychology focused podcast, let me know. I'd love to have her on again. And I'd love to um, focus on topics that you all are interested in. I feel like this was a good uh, primer sort of getting to know you episode with Bo. And I like to get a little bit more deep into a topic for her for next time. So if you have any ideas, let me know. You can leave me a message on Instagram. I'm at Andrea Ferretti. You can leave a review and a message on iTunes, or you can go to yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 31 and leave a comment on the blog post there. Thanks so much, everyone. As always, until next week, enjoy your practice.